Mabel O. Wilson is the Nancy and George Rump Professor of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation and a professor in African American and African Diaspora Studies. Mabel also serves as the Associate Director of the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia. Her work specializes in space, politics, and culture in Black America, as well as race and modern architecture and visual culture in contemporary art, media, and film. Mabel is the author of Negro Building, Black Americans in the World of Fairs and Museums, a book that focuses on how black public history evolved from the Civil War through the 1960s Civil Rights Movement. The book focuses on black Americans' participation in world fairs, emancipation exhibitions, and early grassroots museums. That book gives voice to historic figures such as Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Ida B. Wells, individuals who are not usually thought of as curators. Mabel is also author of Begin With the Past, Building the National Museum of African American History and Culture. The book portrays the history of this museum with a particular focus on the architectural details that were designed to help the museum reflect the culture and history it highlights. Mabel is also the author of two forthcoming books, one titled Reconstruction, Architecture for America, and the other titled Race and Modern Architecture. In addition to being a scholar who writes about space, politics, and culture, Mabel is also a practicing architect. She is a member of the architectural team tasked with designing the memorial to enslaved African-American laborers at the University of Virginia. In honor of her path-breaking work in the field, Mabel received the American Academy of Arts and Letters Architecture Award for her work on the African diaspora. I invited Mabel to the Dean's table to talk about how she decided on becoming an architect, to reflect on her work that explores the history of black exhibitions and museums, and to give us insight into scholarship and practice of race, space, and culture. Welcome to the Dean's Table, Mabel. Uh, pleasure to be here, Dean Harris. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I'm going to start with a simple question. Um, at what point in your life did you decide that you wanted to be an architect? I think that's a really interesting question for me because mm -hmm. I still don't quite consider myself an architect yet. Uh -huh. Technically, I'm not because I'm not licensed. Okay. Um, but also, I've had a very complicated, you could almost say, love-hate relationship with the discipline, discourse, and, and the profession. Uh -huh. But I did grow up in a house of makers. My father mm -hmm. was an engineer. He uh -huh. actually did the plans for the house I grew up in. Oh, wonderful. My mom was a home economics teacher. Mm -hmm. She um, made things. She sewed. She cooked. Mm -hmm. um, and then I discovered later on that my father's grandfather was a builder in North oh, Carolina. Wow. And I have uncles who are artists. I have an mm -hmm. uncle who's a well-known artist named John Outerbridge. So uh -huh. I feel like I came from a family of people, you know, who made things, who made do with what they had and were wildly creative mm -hmm. with um, material culture. So that I think that was a very important part of what led me into at least beginning to become an architect. Right. And so you grew up in New Jersey? Yes, I'm from the Jersey Shore. Neptune. Jersey Shore. Oh, nice. Nice. So it must have been a very interesting place to 
sort of uh, grew up in thinking about all these things that contribute to building and creativity and that sort of thing. So I guess I guess it permeated <laughs> your uh, sort of livelihood and your imagination. But you attended the uh, University of Virginia as an undergraduate, and um, UVA's campus is known as Mr. Thomas Jefferson's campus, right? Jefferson designed the center of the campus um, that is known even today as the Lawn. How did your experience there as a student influence your thoughts about race, space, and culture? I feel that I was really fortunate in many ways to perhaps have ended up in a place like UVA. I Mm -hmm. probably think I'd, you know, I'd never consider this, but may not be where I am had I not gone to a place like Virginia. Why do you say that? Because I think that environment um, where literally Jefferson is God, Mr. Jefferson's university, Thomas Mm -hmm. Jefferson says this, he's a founding father, you know, he founded the university, he built this amazing piece of architecture, we have to learn every nook and cranny. Mm -hmm. But deep down, I knew there was something missing in that narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a slaveholder, but we never heard anything about that. This Mm -hmm. was a region, you know, where slaveholding was prominent, but we never heard anything about an enslaved population at the university. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just prompted me to be curious about, one, why don't I know that mm-hmm. um, history? Why aren't we being taught it? Two, why didn't I ever see anything about where I grew up or my history? You know, my, my grandparents, my mother's family had a shotgun house, but we never learned about right. shotgun houses and vernacular, none of that stuff. Now, for our listeners, I know, because I'm from Georgia, I know what a shotgun house is. For our listeners, tell, tell them what is a shotgun house. Well, the <laughs> urban legend is that uh-huh. it's a, a house that has a series of rooms uh-huh. lined up where all of the doors align. So it doesn't really have a hallway. Uh-huh. So all the doors align, and you could supposedly shoot, shoot a, right. a gun from the front porch all the way through to the, back. the back. Right. Hence the shotgun. You yeah. Can, right. That's yeah. what I was told. So it's a legend? They, yeah. No one knows exactly <laughs> why, but it might have something to do with the way the rooms are lined up. But uh-huh. the migration of that form is believed to actually have come from Haiti. With migrations of enslaved people after the Haitian Revolution into New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And that in Haiti, that also comes from West Africa as a form of building. Mm -hmm. So it was a knowledge of buildings, a kind of spatial memory Mm -hmm. um, that uh, Africans brought with them. To mm. the to the to the new world through the Middle Passage, right? And it, did you get your architectural degree at University of Virginia? I did. I did mm-hmm. study architecture at UVA. So that's mm-hmm. what I mean, being saturated with this narrative of mm-hmm. this great place, this beautiful mm-hmm. architecture, its platonic forms, its representation mm-hmm. of a American, vo- you know, values mm-hmm. were drilled into it. But mm-hmm. you know, my third year in college. Mm-hmm. When you're in architecture school, you work really late. Oh, okay. As if you notice, the lights on are always at Avery mm-hmm. here at, at mm-hmm. Columbia. Mm-hmm. So you're always working late. So you really get to bond with your classmates. So it was amazing right. on that level. So there was a little bit of all the food groups at the university, the frat boys, the mm-hmm. sorority girls, all that stuff. So me and three friends who were mm-hmm. white went for a drink one evening. It might have even been Halloween, um, my third year as an undergrad. Uh-huh. And we went downtown. To, to this bar. Downtown Miller's, Charlottesville. Downtown Charlottesville. Now it's really busy, but back in the mm-hmm. back in the early 80s, it mm-hmm. was a site of urban renewal. Mm-hmm. It was a walking mall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there weren't many businesses. So it was late. It was probably about 1230 when we finished and we were 
heading home and we were walking to my friend Michael's car and we were like, what is that in the distance? What do we see? These white sheets coming toward us. And I looked at my friend Paul. I'm like, Paul, is that the clown? (laughs) We were like... Yeah, it's was the it clan. really? Was it, it really were uh, two to three people in 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 clan costumes, hood, everything. Wow. Yeah, and, and so it wasn't Halloween. I don't think that would have been an appropriate. I, even so, I'm just costume. trying to imagine. You know, just this is a random thing, or is this something that happened? It, well, it was pretty deserted. Uh huh. You know, part of the city. It wasn't developed then. It hadn't uh-huh. been really gentrified. Uh-huh. So we took off running, and they chased us. Did they really? They did. You know, so that's what I mean. You're having this kind of right. discordant experience of one being chased by the Klan, and two, this is Mr. Jefferson's university. Yeah. But you could see the inequalities in that landscape, right? Mm-hmm. That that clearly, just on the edges of the university, is a poor black working class neighborhood again right. of shotgun houses, and and you can kind of sense that relationship that might have been there under slavery or right. or you know Reconstruction and then Jim Crow. That's funny because around the same time when I was an undergraduate at another Southern institution, the University of Georgia, uh, which has this sort of uh, people would describe as beautiful antebellum, I think it's Greek revival architecture, um, and the fraternities and sororities would have something called Old South Day, where they would dress up in the hoop skirts and you know the, the you know the Old South days. And their relationship to the community, at least within that ritual, was actually, if if you can believe this, hiring some, you know, black kids to be slaves on their floats. Wow. Right. (laughs) So we're going to say we're going to talk more about sort of race and space and architecture. Oh, Uh, that would explain Ralph Northam's, you know, the Virginia governor that got busted either being in blackface or in a Uh clan, you know, the kind of performance of, Uh you know, these kinds of southern tropes. Right. Right. So you went on to receive your master's in architecture at Columbia. Um, What was that experience like, by the way? Um, that came after working professionally for three years. Oh, you did that? I okay. did, yeah. Mm-hmm. I worked um, in the city for, mm-hmm. I worked for Robert Stern, who mm-hmm. would eventually, he was on faculty actually at Columbia, but then became the dean of Yale. Okay. And that was, um, I think, a really remarkable experience. Mm-hmm. I strategically began to sort of split the kinds of classes I was taking mm-hmm. between studio art classes. Mm-hmm. So I took printmaking with Bob Blackburn, who's mm-hmm. a very oh, well-known Black- artist. Yeah, Bob was great. I took, he was at Columbia? He was at Columbia. He ran I the, a, he's he, a printer, right? He was a printer, yeah. yeah. And then I took, um, you know, was taking postmodern theory classes with uh-huh. Andreas Hoysen. Uh-huh. So was interested in trying to develop a, a kind of theoretical framework for mm-hmm. understanding, beginning to understand race, blackness, black history in, in the built environment. Um, but also still invested in a kind of materiality and making, trying to mm-hmm. discover modes of, of making that could be understood again as coming from black cultural traditions, things that I was not mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. Um, uh, directly through my education. Mm-hmm. And so my last semester at Columbia was asked by my studio critic, Stan Allen, who became a dean at, at Princeton in mm-hmm. architecture, to use collage methodologies to work on the single-family house. And it was fascinating because then I started looking at the work of, like, my uncle, John Outerbridge, Mm -hmm. Betty Saar, David Hammonds. These are contemporary African-American artists. Yes, Yes. and these were really important influences. But there was one thing that 
was really mind-blowing, mm-hmm. and it came from Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. And what's that? It's the beginning passages where she uses the Dick and Jane primer, mm-hmm. where she has three paragraphs, and the first paragraphs is what you expect. See Jane run, see Scott run, see Spot run, you know, that, that whole. And then she removes the um, rules of grammar, so there's no capitalization or period. Mm-hmm. So you could still read the words, but you don't know the pauses. So, mm-hmm. And then in the last paragraph, she squeezes out the space between the words. Mm-hmm. So you can't really occupy the text. Mm-hmm. And to me, it just it gave me a clue of the power of representation and mm-hmm. the rules that organized how words communicate. Huh. And so I took that method and then started to apply it to architectural representation, huh. which are lines, dotted lines. It's mm-hmm. a, it's, you know, it has a syntax mm-hmm. for how we read plans. Mm-hmm. And so it allowed me to misread architectural drawings of things like the Levittown House to mm-hmm. say that blackness is lurking within these hidden spaces of the house. Now tell our, our listeners, I know what Levittown is, but many of our listeners may not know. Uh, just a brief description. Oh uh, Yeah, the Levittown, was, the Levittown houses were built first in Long Island, mm-hmm. but you find them in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania right. And Levitt was a very um, shrewd builder who benefited from monies coming from the GI loans, particularly for white families who were mm-hmm. able to then buy these very small single-family homes. Right. So it kind of becomes a sort of incubator for the building up of wealth in the United States, but also a kind of paradigm for the single-family American suburban home. Right. And they were highly racially segregated. Absolutely. Uh, right. Covenants that wouldn't allow... Uh, uh, Jews to move into neighborhoods, mm-hmm. blacks couldn't move into neighborhoods, Mexicans. I mean, it was, right. you know, again, it became a way to incubate whiteness and white wealth in this country. Right. Uh, by the way, did you uh, work with the architect uh, J. Max Bunn while you were a student at Columbia? I did an internship or externship with Max's office when I was actually an undergrad. Oh, really? So, again, for our listeners, uh, I know who J. Max Bunn is, but he's a very famous African-American architect, the late. The late Max, yeah. yeah, yeah. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about him and your experience in working with him? Sure. Um, My story was I went to my dean very Mm -hmm. boldly as an undergrad Mm -hmm. and just said, look, I need to find a black architect. And it's literally, I had never had a black professor. Right. We do critiques. This is at Virginia, this right? This is at UVA. Yeah. No black critics ever mm-hmm. seeing my work. No, mm-hmm. And so I, I just needed to see myself mirrored in the field. And so the dean, Jacqueline Robertson, said, hey, my friend Max Bond, you mm-hmm. know, who was the chair at Columbia, mm-hmm. actually, um, and might at that time been teaching at Columbia. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, this was in the mid-'80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a, an internship with his office, Bond Writer James. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was really remarkable. And what I really admired about Max, who I believe was a Columbia grad, in fact, mm-hmm. if that's correct, or maybe he went to Harvard. I think he might have done his master's at Harvard, okay. but taught at Columbia. Mm-hmm. He had traveled. He had worked for Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, mm-hmm. built an amazing um, library influenced by uh, European modernism, mm-hmm. came back to the U.S. and established a really important practice. And so it kind of said to me that, you know, there there's a way in which you could be an academic, you could be a practitioner, you could address urbanisms, you could sort of weave in Pan-African sensibilities mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. your work. It, it, it gave me hope that 
Right. There could be a place within the field for someone like right. me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was just really brilliant person and, and very generous. So I didn't work for Max for a long time, but I kind of always stayed in mm-hmm. touch. I, mm-hmm. you know, we would run into each other or I would let him know where I was or what I was doing. And um, yeah, yeah, I think he was a very important figure, at least for me as an inspiration. Yeah, I'm familiar with his work because in Atlanta, he was the architect for the Martin Luther King Jr. King Center. Um, there, which has all these sort of African influences as a part of the structure. Yeah, uh, no, he did a number of very important works. He did the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Mm-hmm. He did the Studio Museum, addition to the Schomburg. Mm-hmm. He later merged his practice with Davis Brody, which mm-hmm. is a, a very large architectural firm in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And they were architects for... Um, the 9-11. The 9-11 Museum. Yeah. And, and one of the last projects that Max worked on was the National Museum of African American History and Culture. He right. passed away uh, right before the final phase yeah. of the competition was underway, yeah. um, which was very sad because I was one, on a team of one of the finalists right. and Max was not there, and it was clear right. that, that he was quite ill at that time. Right. So you went on to attend graduate school at New York University, NYU, enrolling into a Ph.D. program, not in architecture, but in American studies. Why did you decide to pursue a doctoral degree in American studies? say that the program found me and Uh that it was really a refuge. In between, when I finished um, my degree at Columbia, my master's Mm -hmm. of architecture, my professional degree, I was just going to work professionally. I had no interest in ever pursuing a PhD or even teaching. But at the time, the economy had pretty much bottomed out. So being able to get a job actually in the profession, even though I had um, Mm -hmm. experience, I very, very, very fast. I like doing mm-hmm. construction drawings. I, c- I couldn't find work and, in fact, wow. was going to go to Europe to look for work. Hmm. Um, uh, and so I had a professor here at Columbia who was just nudging me to teach, go find, you know, mm-hmm. to, and he got my name into two pools for positions at Ohio State at University of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So actually, between my graduate, my master's degree, and my PhD, I taught at the University of Kentucky. I had Did a very really? weird trajectory. Yeah, I had a tenure track position really? in architecture at, at oh, the universe. Really? Yeah, at the University of Kentucky. How in long were you there? Um, I was there for four years. In Lexington? In Lexington, yeah. And the remarkable thing was I became very good friends uh, of a group of interdisciplinary scholars who Uh formed a committee on social theory. And so that group was phenomenal. I mean, it was just an amazing... And Kentucky is known for its geography department. So Mm -hmm. it was a really great group of radical geographers thinking about Mm -hmm. gender, race, sexuality, and Mm -hmm. the built environment space. Um, And so they kept nudging me like, you really should pursue doctoral studies. You Mm -hmm. really. And along the way, I actually started writing a bit, um, Mm -hmm. you know, publishing in journals and and then also starting to cultivate a practice. I did a project for the Wexner Center called Mm -hmm. House Rules. I worked with a feminist geographer and we looked at two communities in Lexington, Mm -hmm. a subdivision settled primarily by white families and a um, uh, black housing project in Lexington settled by uh, Mm -hmm. with African-American women primarily Mm -hmm. um, and sort of looked at the language of domesticity in both those Mm -hmm. and relationships to power. And that really kind of set me off in a set of questions that I then took with me into a a PhD. But to be perfectly honest, Mm -hmm. I applied to, to architectural 
PhD programs, history PhD programs, and they couldn't figure out what, what to, to make of yeah. what to make of me. I wanted to work on race. They saw mm -hmm. race as a social issue, completely irrelevant to mm. architectural history. Right. Um, and so, with um, not a lot of support from people, I asked to write letters of recommendation. Huh. I, I couldn't get into architectural history. I found out a year later why that was, and I got an apology from one of the institutions because they realized they had made a huge mistake, but by then... Well, a year later or now that you're like this famous architecture No, 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 no literally a year later, <laughs> okay. they realized, oh, oh, wait, she's actually really uh -huh. sharp, doing interesting work, but by then I was at NYU mm -hmm. doing American studies, which for me was amazing. It was mm -hmm. like being immersed in the humanities and the mm -hmm. social sciences mm -hmm. and... You know, and I had phenomenal classmates like mm. Alondra Nelson, right. Devarian Baldwin, Jerry Filigen, mm. Mia Mask. I mean, it was just a Who did you really work with there at NYU? I worked, um, well, I took classes with a number of people, like my current colleague, Stephen Gregory, oh, Lisa wow. Dugan, mm -hmm. Andrew Ross, right. um, Robin Kelly, mm -hmm. Wanima Lubiano, wow. Phil Harper. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty... Yeah, I <laughs> sat in on Jose Munoz's class. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a really amazing... Mm -hmm. uh, ex experience, yeah. Right. So let's talk about your first book, um, Negro Building. It has been described as a work that contributes to the fields of art history, architectural, visual culture, and museum studies, um, that it offers a bold interdisciplinary model for scholarship in African-American studies. So one reviewer notes that Negro Building is, quote, the most comprehensive study yet published about the long history of representation of, by, and for African Americans at world fairs and museums. Tell us more about what this book, Negro Building, is about. Negro Building is actually my dissertation topic, okay. which was called Making History Visible. Okay. And my interest in that came out of um, actually a very New York City story, looking mm -hmm. at the African burial ground in Lower uh -huh. Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And that project was actually happening my last year when I was doing my master's at Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I was just fascinated by it. And in fact, the first thing I ever published was actually on a uh, competition by the Municipal Arts Society mm -hmm. on that project. So I was just kind of keenly interested in what does it mean for black history to be represented in the public sphere. And that mm -hmm. project showed me that there were huge stakes mm -hmm. at what that could mean, political, economic, geographic. Um, it mm -hmm. was just, you know, it was such a fight for that project to even exist mm -hmm. um, that, I, you know, I just asked, well, could I look at something that could tell me something about that? Mm -hmm. And then I became interested in the black museum movement. I wrote, right. s I wrote stuff about the um, Civil Rights Museum in mm -hmm. Memphis and how that came right. about. And I realized, oh, wait, what does it mean for African-Americans post-civil rights to claim space to represent their history when that was not allowed, clearly, mm -hmm. under slavery or under Jim Crow? Right. So it was the taking of space and the representation of that history right. that was really the focus of, of, of my dissertation and became the kind of substrate for what became Negro building. Mm -hmm. And in the process of writing the dissertation, you know, you write a prospectus, that's one thing, mm -hmm. but the archives will tell you something else. <laughs> and yeah. I found a Negro building and uh -huh. I was like, what is this? Right. Where, you know, and, it, and there was this thing called the Negro building at the Atlanta 
Cotton State's exposition, exposition. in 1895. Right. And it turned out Booker T. Washington was there. And I'm like, there's a story there. And then just doing archivally, I just started to discover it. it wasn't the only one. Right. There were others. And then it just unraveled this whole thread of people who were using exhibitions, particularly temporary ones, mm-hmm. partic- under Jim Crow, to make all kinds of claims about mm-hmm. what black America could be and where it was coming from. And right. that's what I found. You know, you find Carter G. Woodson there. You yeah. you find... And these are curators, right? Because yeah, they're, they're putting... curating. They're thinking about history uh-huh. um, to different kinds of publics. Mm-hmm. Um, they're seeing it as a way to sort of leverage um, the promise of black America. Mm-hmm. This is who we are. This is who we could be. So mm-hmm. it's very much about a black imaginary. Right. Um, and they're leveraging it for the rights that have yet to be granted. Right. And so you look at different, I, I don't know if you recall them cases, but historical periods or situations where there were exhibitions. Um, you mentioned the Atlanta Cotton States exhibition in 1895. I guess you did the one in Chicago, the Chicago World's Fair. I mentioned that. It wasn't mm-hmm. a primary focus because mm-hmm. there wasn't exactly black representation, and okay. that's what Ida B. Wells writes about, why right. there are no colored people. Uh-huh. But the person who, who writes about the black press, mm-hmm. um, this guy, I think, Irving Penn, uh-huh. he actually becomes the curator for the Atlanta Exposition. Mm-hmm. And oh. Booker T. Washington gets involved with it. And through Booker T. Washington, they're able to channel all of the emerging mm-hmm. black uh, schools in the region right. to provide content yeah. for the promise what then Booker T. Washington starts to say of what industrial education could deliver to a South that's attempting in some ways to industrialize. And that was the project of the Cotton Exposition. Right. But then you have a figure like Du Bois. Yeah, who, who goes to Paris? Is this the one? Yeah, mm-hmm. but what was interesting was that he was being lured to Atlanta University to mm-hmm. potentially set up a Congress, a sociological Congress that would have happened at the tail end of the Cotton wow. States Exposition. He mm-hmm. doesn't come in time, but he arrives mm-hmm. shortly thereafter mm-hmm. and then starts a series of studies about blacks in, in cities. You right. know, that's his sociological, that's the Atlanta right. University yeah. conferences, which are counter to the, right. the Washington. And then he takes that project with a fifth classmate of his mm-hmm. and does this exposition in Paris, which Booker right. T. Washington is also involved with. Right. So you see the same group of people engaged mm-hmm. in these displays serially. And mm-hmm. then both Booker T. Washington and Du Bois start to get involved in emancipation expositions mm-hmm. at the 50th year anniversary mm-hmm. of emancipation. So there's mm-hmm. a big one in Chicago. Du Bois launches one in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, and these emancipation expositions happen in the 40s. There's a oh, huge wow. one in Detroit. There's uh-huh. another one in, in Chicago. The one in Chicago has involvement from people like uh, Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, Horace Caton. Mm-hmm. Um, Sociologist. Yeah. yeah. Um, M- Margaret Burroughs, who goes on to found the DuSable. Museum, yeah, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I started to see them as, you know, expositions are cities in miniature. So they f- reflect back on urban politics mm-hmm. and, and starting to understand a rising black middle class, their mm-hmm. relationships with, with the working class, and how mm-hmm. those unfold within these curatorial spaces. Mm-hmm. And literally, the expositions go to the 19, to 1963, roughly, right. in uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, at that exposition, Margaret Burroughs is involved, and she really pushes for 
a museum, and that becomes the DuSable Museum. And right. Charles Wright then starts a museum in Detroit. So there's a direct connection between these expositions and the Black Museum movement that mm-hmm. gives birth to the National African American Museum of History and Culture. Yeah. And that project goes back to 1915, and again, a group of people who had worked on expositions mm-hmm. who wanted to do a memorial building in Washington, D.C. Right. So that's a great segue because... You also wrote a book about the Smithsonian Museum on African-American history and culture titled Begin with the Past. Um, The book documents the selection of architects, designers, and engineers that culminated in a museum that embodies African-American sensibilities about space, form, and material and incorporates rich cultural symbols into the design of the building and its surrounding landscape. So tell us, how exactly does the design of that museum embody African-American sensibilities about space, form, and material? Um, the, the building, um, the, the final building, mm-hmm. um, by a team that was called Fabs. It was uh-huh. the late Phil Freelon. Right. Oh, he's late, too. I didn't he know that. He passed away uh, about a year ago. Um, David Ajay, who's mm-hmm. the design, mm-hmm. uh, is on record as the des- design lead. Right. Um, the late Max Bond mm-hmm. and the Smith Group. So that was Fabs. Right. Even though David is often accorded, it's mm-hmm. but actually it was a, a group of firms, and particularly mm-hmm. with Phil Freeland, um, which is now per- owned by Perkins and Wills, uh, African American woman architect Zena Howard was really a significant oh. person in mm-hmm. in the building. Um, but I, but I think very early on, from what I could gather, and you know, again, this is Max, Phil, and, and mm-hmm. David, mm-hmm. Um, was that they were thinking about what kinds of traditions could come from uh, the American South, mm-hmm. uh, what might be drawn from uh, West African cultural traditions, and how that might merge into a building mm-hmm. that Lonnie Bunch um, described as is desirous of having a, a dark presence on, on the National Mall. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the way Lonnie framed it. And, and mm. I got involved in the project in two ways. I gave Lonnie uh-huh. Bunch, who is the director, was the director of the museum and is now literally the secretary of the Smithsonian. Uh-oh. I boldly just gave him a copy of my dissertation because I, oh, I really? thought that he oh. should, he would, he's a historian and that uh-huh. he would be interested in knowing this history of these expositions um, precisely because they were political projects. Mm-hmm. Some black nationalist, mm-hmm. um, civil rights projects, but... The museums were never an end of them in and of themselves, but sites to leverage, mm-hmm. right? Um, social, social, and civil rights gains, mm-hmm. and I thought that that needed to be part and parcel of the museum. And then I was also on a team. I reached out to Elizabeth Diller of Diller Scafidio Renfro here in the city, who just mm-hmm. redid MoMA, has done the High Line, um, mm-hmm. and they Liz said, yeah, let's go for it. And so we were shortlisted. We were one of the six of the international firms. So when they wanted to write the book, they knew, okay, she's an architect. She gets this part of the project, but she also has written this history. We could entrust her to do this this whole project. And so what I proposed to Lonnie Bunch and Kinshasa Conwell, who's the associate director, that one half of the book describes the current project, but mm-hmm. another half, the first half, would tell the history of the museum, mm. starting in 1915, which is mm-hmm. exactly the kind of narrative that the museum is trying to tell, mm-hmm. that it's not always a pull yourself up by the bootstrap succeed, but there were numerous failures. And mm-hmm. what does it mean to fight for spaces of representation? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was an important part of the sort of narrative of the book. And that interweaves in the ways in which we then start, you know, within the book, talking about how the museum is laid out, the kind of mm-hmm. central gathering space that people come in and the mm-hmm. way it references the landscape and breaks down the sort of European neoclassical mm-hmm. white marble building on a, a pedestal where mm-hmm. it's a very internalized experience. Right, right. So um, I think it's a beautiful building. It's uh, Many people describe it as a crown. A <laughs> like corona. A, a, a corona, okay. <laughs> Um, and it's just this, it's just spectacular, um, particularly as you see it in the distance. Just out of curiosity, I want to get this from your perspective of history as well as an architect. How would you compare that structure or, or what you call space and form to other museums on African American life and culture? And I'm thinking in particular of the Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati. Have you had a chance to see it or visit? I've been there. I can't say it left a necessarily lasting impression architecturally. Um, Actually, I'm asking because that's the way I felt, actually. And I'm not sure why. And I, because I think, like, a lot of these buildings will try to draw on tropes of, like, kinte cloth or Mm -hmm. certain, it's it's the ship in the wind. um, Yeah. Uh, metaphor and and what I appreciate about the design of mm-hmm. the African American the National Museum mm-hmm. is the ways in which that Corona is made up of these panels mm-hmm. that are referencing the craft work of Black iron workers in places mm-hmm. like Charleston and New Orleans and and those traditions again are diasporic right they come mm-hmm. from metalworking traditions in Western Africa you know, translated into these new world ideas, syncretic representations through religions of certain forms. Mm -hmm. And so what um, David Ajay's team did was was try to reference those and and bring them into this very almost plastic, transparent, dense sometimes screen that surrounds the, Mm -hmm. the museum. And I think it's a very powerful, there's a level of abstraction to it Mm -hmm. that I think is very powerful, but there's a materiality that then kind of brings it into to the present. And so, you know, I just think it was a very elegant um, design mm-hmm. that could also go through an incredibly rigorous and almost, you could say, ruthless design review process. Uh, yeah. And I would credit Lonnie Bunch on that, of knowing what mm-hmm. to fight for, when to fight for it, mm-hmm. um, to keep the integrity of good design. And that's having a client who really understands the value of good design. Right. So I want to say more, ask you more rather about your direct engagement and public engagement. You are a co-director of the Global Africa Lab, uh, which is a project that explores the spatial uh, topologies of the African continent and its diaspora. Um, What kinds of projects have the lab been involved in? Um, I have co-directed Global Africa Lab with my colleague, Mario Gooden, Mm -hmm. um, since 2012. And we work um, with a researcher, Carson Smuts, who um, Mm is a brilliant programmer, designer, who is with MIT's Media Lab. And we've been sort of looking at processes of urbanization, globalization in black cities around the world. Mm -hmm. So Johannesburg, Cape Town, we've looked at um, Abuja and Lagos, Dakar, 
Rio, Detroit, mm. New York City, and use techniques to sort of model the ways in which uh, contemporary movements happen within those spaces in terms of people and mm -hmm. goods, mm -hmm. uh, but also kind of a historical trajectory, understanding what is it, you know, what, what did the colonial project of empire mm -hmm. uh, wrought in space, particularly like in the South African examples, the legacies of apartheid and mm -hmm. townships, mm -hmm. and then the post-apartheid landscape under neoliberalism, while those barriers are removed, there are still deeply embedded inequalities. So how do you start to map those? And what does it mean to build within those contexts where people are not just moving through the city, but moving to the city from places like Zimbabwe mm -hmm. and elsewhere? Yeah. So some of the work that we do is pedagogical. We do uh -huh. work with students. We teach uh -huh. architectural design students to graduate students. And uh -huh. we've done workshops um, in places like Cape Town and, and Johannesburg. Wow, that's wonderful. So I have a final question. You, of course, attended the opening of the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, which was in late September of 2016. There were three days of events. There were celebrities like um, Oprah, uh, Stevie Wonder, and Patti LaBelle saying uh, President Obama and Bush gave remarks. And the legendary civil rights activist and congressman John Lewis gave a heartfelt speech on how far African Americans have come to have a museum dedicated to their struggles placed on the National Mall. So you had with you that day a unique vantage point. You have a deep understanding about race, space, and culture. What do you remember most about the opening of the museum? Well, I wish I were there in person. You weren't? I was not. Oh, I'm making all these assumptions. I thought you maybe you did selfies with, with Stevie Wonder and yeah, with Oprah. Yeah, me, me Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was not. I did go to one of the openings oh. of, the, of the museum, but no, I was unfortunately not there. But I, but I did watch it on television. <laughs> oh, um, okay. But, but I thought, one, I thought it was very shrewd, uh -huh. you know, again, that somehow I think Lonnie and Kinshasa knew we got to get this thing open uh -huh. in the last months of the Obama administration because we don't know what's going to happen in 2016. Uh -huh. And I thought it was very proud that here, mm -hmm. what I like to say about the museum, which a lot of people do not know, and again, this has to do with the history of the Smithsonian, which I'm actually working on mm. right now, is that the Smithsonian was a racial, to some degree, a racial project of constructing whiteness. Mm -hmm. And they uh. did so in a way that basically primitivized the indigenous people, which is mm -hmm. why they had such a huge collection, collection yeah. of native people's objects that mm -hmm. then went on that they had to repatriate and then went on to set up the Museum of the American Indian. Mm -hmm. For black folks in America, they didn't collect anything because black people had no history and had contributed nothing to America. Wow. And so you see these things arising in the debates in the 1960s and what that I count in part in Negro building and also begin with the past. Um, and and that African-Americans like Charles Wright and Margaret Burroughs did not want the federal government to do a national museum. So they didn't trust them. They didn't trust them. Right. You, you <laughs> would never see, um, you know, Malcolm X. You, you, right. you couldn't have Marcus Garvey. You mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to tell these stories. But by the 80s, there was a new push, and John Lewis was, was, mm -hmm. was critical to that. So what they had to do was not just build a building, but then build a collection, because the, the Smithsonian really had not collected much. Oh. That, I think, is really remarkable. It is. And, and again, what, what I wanted to say, begin with the past, was it wasn't just from 2002, I think, when Bush signed mm -hmm. the act that actually established the institution. 
but it was a long series of people who had kept trying and trying. And, and so the museum is really built on that legacy mm -hmm. um, of, of trying to figure out how to tell this story. And I'm just in awe that they really get into why, you know, as the 1619 Project tells us in the New York Times, mm -hmm. that, you know, that the creation of the black in the Americas was critical to the formation of modernity and also to the formation of the United States. And the museum, I think, tells that story. Right. Well, thanks so much, Mabel, for stopping through the Dean's Table. This has been fun. Thank you for having me. The Dean's Table is produced by Ursula Sommer with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone, Ariana Sullivan, and John Weffler. Our researchers are Emma Flaherty and Angeline Lee. Our logo is by Jessica Lillian. Our music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris. <laughs>